Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. That's not the job of Keith, myself, Sarah, or our firm. We have a little girl who's got a devastating injury, and we are in that courtroom to get her what she deserves for the rest of her life, and that's what we did. And we did it extremely successfully in this case, and I will never apologize for that. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Steve Lowry, with uh, Yvonne Godfrey, who uh, apparently is having somebody do work right above her condo today. <laughs> yes. as it's bad timing. That's bad timing. And as we talked about, I decided to record from my apartment because of the jackhammering at our Atlanta office. And right. now they're doing... I don't even know what upstairs. I'm sure what will be a very beautiful renovation. <laughs> Absolutely. Hopefully you get invited up. Yeah. Well, Yvonne, we got a really good case to talk about today, but I wanted to start out by saying, uh, I, as you know, um, um, I am from uh, Maryland, just south of Baltimore from uh, Silver Spring, Columbia area. And uh, just within the past few days, our, the president uh, decided to uh, take some shots at, uh, at the great city of Baltimore, which, uh, which I don't think anybody would say Baltimore is perfect, but it is a very nice city and uh, uh, definitely didn't deserve that. And we happen to have uh, two great products from uh, from the city of Baltimore as our guest today. Uh, I would like to introduce uh, Mary McNamara Cook and Eric, uh, sorry, Keith, uh, I screwed that up, uh, Keith D. Foreman uh, from the Waste Vogelstein Foreman and Offit Law Firm. And uh, if anybody would like to look them up, their website is malpracticeteam.com. Mary and Keith, how are you doing? Awesome. Thank you. Doing well. Thank you for having us. And Keith, I don't know why the hell I said that. I mean, I had, uh, I don't know where Eric came from, but uh, we know your name is Keith and I, I apologize for that. It looks uh, you, like an Eric. I usually feel like Kevin's. This is the first Eric, so I Right, right exactly. <laughs> um, well, guys, uh, um, we are so happy to have you on here. And I, I, I didn't, we don't have to get into politics, but I mean, it just so happens that, uh, you know, right after the president decides to uh, spout off about uh, about Baltimore, then we happen to have you two on there. So I'm just wondering how people there are, are taking that. I'm not a fan of the um, orange-haired menace, so <laughs> it doesn't. It's just one more insult on top of all the other insults that he piles on regularly to everyone in the country who doesn't see the same way as he sees. Right, 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 exactly. And I, I think, I, if memory serves me correct, he, he's had a lot of business dealings in Atlantic City, New Jersey. <laughs> right, yeah. Last time I checked, that's not exactly the most perfect place on earth either. Oh, and let's not forget, Jared Kushner owns rental properties in Baltimore City, so I would I would wonder if his are part of the rodent-infested portion of the city or not. Mm. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine that, rodents in a major city. I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah, that never happens. I've never heard of that in any other city, certainly not in New York. Uh, <laughs> well, um, well, let me introduce you guys. Uh, we, like I said, told Yvonne, we have just a, a really uh, fantastic, uh, groundbreaking case. And so I'm excited to talk to you guys about it. Um, but as I said, uh, we'll start with Mary. Mary McNamara Cook is from uh, Baltimore, a graduate from the University of Baltimore School of Law. And Mary has been uh, uh, practicing in and around uh, Baltimore for uh, 
uh, 30 years, more than 30 years, and, and started out as a prosecutor before moving to the civil side and doing plaintiff's work and uh, has just had some tremendous um Tremendous results, um, including a $37 million settlement, which involved um, hundreds of unnecessary cardiac stent procedures. And Yvonne, that kind of reminds me of the uh, podcast we had with uh, with Randy McGinn, where she uh, tried a very similar case yeah. uh, out in New Mexico. Uh, and then, and then um, Mary has also had a, a $34.3 million verdict involving carbon monoxide uh, poisoning with, uh, or not poisoning, but uh, carbon monoxide that uh, made, uh, I think, a lot of employees from Ruth's Chris Steakhouse uh, very ill. And I actually, uh, Mary, I'll talk, we'll talk off the air about this, but I think I know uh, several of the folks involved in that case from both sides, from both the uh, plaintiffs and the defense side. Um, but that was certainly a, a, a tremendous uh, result and uh, and I saw in your uh, resume that you have this great quote, which I'm going to make sure that I tell all of the uh, people at our firm that when you're handling a case, you have to remain creative from beginning to end, which uh, I think is absolutely true. And you can't uh, it, things change during when you're when you're working on a case, and and uh, they don't always break your way, and you've got to be able to deal with it. So I think that's a fantastic quote. Thank you. And and Keith. Um, uh, Keith is, uh, uh, and I should say both Mary and, and Keith are partners at, uh, at Waste Vogelstein, Foreman and Offit. And, um, and Keith is a fantastic lawyer. He's been named as uh, one at 40 under 40 by the National Trial Lawyers Association, uh, has handled cases uh, that involved a $55 million verdict against Johns Hopkins, a $21 million verdict against Harbor Hospital, and a $15.6 million verdict against Prince George's Hospital. Is a rising, they've been named a rising star. And uh, in um, from what I could tell, Keith, you uh, went to college in Rhode Island and then you went to law school in Baltimore, uh, but for some reason you have passed the Minnesota bar, so I was just wondering about that. Yeah, so uh, when I first started practicing law, the law firm I started with had carved out a practice in Minnesota and uh, we started making a name for ourselves out there and with the current practice I'm in, we've developed relationships with other lawyers out there, and there are only so many times you could get admitted in a certain jurisdiction pro hoc vice. Right, right. So decided to sort of go all in in Minnesota. It, it actually encompasses about 25, 25% of my practice these days. Wow, okay. So you, yeah. you had head out to Minnesota quite a bit then. I try not to in between October and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, in, in April, but <laughs> otherwise, uh, yes. <laughs> I, I had a case where the uh, the corporation that we were in, uh, w who's the defendant, uh, was up in uh, up in uh, Stillwater, Minnesota, and so we had to head up there at all times of the year. And so I I got to know the area pretty well, and it's a uh, it's it's a beautiful area. But yeah, during uh, during the winter, definitely a place not not for you know somebody who's now living in Savannah. Even though I did you know grow up in Maryland, which is not that far north. Sure. Well, guys, um, this case that we have to talk about is uh, is a, a really fascinating case, uh, a tragic case, and um, uh, it's called uh, Zubita Byram versus Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. Uh, it was tried in the uh, Baltimore City Circuit Court. It was just uh, the verdict came in in July of 2019, so it was uh, 
just a little bit over or about a month ago. Uh, and the verdict was $229 million, $229.6 million uh, against Johns Hopkins uh, Bayview Medical Center uh, for the uh, catastrophic brain injury that Zubita Byram um, suffered uh, as a result of essentially mishandling uh, the pregnancy. And, uh, and I'm just going to give a little overview of it. And, and if I mess it up, just let me know. But um, uh, Erica Byram, uh, 16 years old, um, was about 25 weeks pregnant. She came in for what seemed to be a routine checkup on October 20th of 2014. Um, and it was determined that she had severe preeclampsia, uh, which is um, high blood pressure, puts the mom and baby at risk and can um, means that the a lot of times means that the baby needs to uh, get delivered, and that, that was the case here. And so she was transferred to Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center, uh, specifically because they had a neonatal intensive care unit um, at Johns Hopkins and didn't at the hospital that she was at. And then, uh, it, it, I mean, the, the facts in this case, and I'll, I'll need you guys to flesh this out for me, but she goes on October 20th of 2014, all signs for the the baby seem to be that the baby is healthy and normal. Um, there, um, the the uh, weight uh, and and the development all seem to be fine. And then, uh, for some reason, on the twenty first, uh, one of the doctors essentially tells um, Erica and her family that uh, the doctor uh, that the baby is uh, not developing. Uh, uh, well and is way underway and the, essentially they're told that the baby is most likely going to either die or have a severe brain injury and uh, and then basically starts giving advice based on that assumption and um, from what it sounds like to me is that they, they essentially talked her out of getting a, a c-section which is really what should have happened at that point in time uh, and then um, I didn't really understand why, and this, I need your help with it, but uh, basically talked her into not having uh, monitors, a heart monitor on the, on the child, uh, wasn't going to have the uh, uh, NICU team there uh, for the child, um, and they were just going to let the baby be uh, delivered and let nature take its course is sort of the, um, uh, the way I, I read it. And... Um, it turns out that the information that she was given about her uh, baby being underdeveloped and not doing well was just just wrong, and there really was no basis for where that information came from. And um, and so they took the monitors off, and she um, was in the hospital for uh, this was on the twenty first for another three days before she actually delivered, and they actually induced her uh, without having monitors on. So she went a total of uh, more than 63 hours with no monitors. Um, and uh, by the time that the baby's born um, and after inducing her, and, and you guys can talk about this a little bit more, that inducing puts, uh, you know, enormous uh, uh, pressure on the child. Um, she gets severely brain damaged. Um, and so the case involved the severe brain damage that, uh, that occurred um, to Zubita uh, Byram, uh, and this um, affected her um, in every way possible. Um, it sounds like one of the worst brain injuries you could have. Um, and so 
the, the case was around the, this uh, treatment that was given from October 20th to October 24th and the uh, severe brain injury that uh, the Zubita suffered. I know that was a very uh, just uh, sky high overview of what happened, but, uh, but is that is essentially the case? Yeah, essentially. Mom came to the hospital and when she got to the hospital, she was seen by a resident physician and originally, and this was, these words are taken directly from the medical record. She was told that the probability of success for mom and baby, given everything they knew on admission was fair. That's the word they used fair, meaning you got a premature baby and outcomes vary, but it's not terrible based on the information we have. And when she was told the probability of success was fair, mom consented to a C-section for all reasons. And then the next day, they essentially and erroneously start telling mom that the baby isn't viable and that the baby is likely to die and the baby weighs 400 grams and the baby weighed over 600 grams and that the baby's chance of having a normal brain was, quote, zero and that the NICU wouldn't be present at delivery, which is the whole reason she was there to begin with was for right. the NICU. And when being told that information, Erica Byram did what any sane human being would do, which is to decline a C-section to deliver a dead baby because no sane person would agree to that. Right. Uh, and then what really unfolded during discovery and, and very dramatically in front of the jury at trial was that they caught it. They realized what they had done uh, by giving her this wrong information while she was still in the hospital and after the fetal monitoring had been disconnected. And because of concerns about media exposure and having offered termination, I left that part out, they offered termination to mom over potential media exposure. And, and Mary really brought this out of the head of labor and delivery during trial. And it was very, it was a, it was a dramatic moment during the trial. And, and it was, I think, a moment of honesty for the head of labor and delivery. They realized they'd made this error, but if they went in and said to mom, look, we offered you termination, which is such a hot button issue. But again, those are, those are actually the words of the, the, the head of labor and delivery during the trial. You know, if, if we go in and we, we tell her that, well, then they've got a potential media crisis. And, and she kind of, th those were her words. Wow. In front of the jury. And so we had an explanation to give to the jury as to why they didn't go in and make it right once they had determined what they had done was wrong. And that's, that fills in some gaps. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this and I'm gonna say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. 
Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Well, and that was so significant to me in terms of um, even reading, you know, the complaint in the case and seeing, unfortunately, some of the facts that you see a lot in in birth injury cases, but then seeing um, that that this young mother was off as given as one of her choices or options, um, termination, termination of her pregnancy. I that really sort of caught me by surprise and and um and it's is shocking but also explains where her and I'm sure we'll get into this more where her mental state would have been as far as her choice to not have a C-section at that so um, you have now uh, made the statement that I've never heard the defendants acknowledge to be true. No one on the other side would, I mean, I started my rebuttal. So Keith did the closing and I did the rebuttal. And that was the pretty much the first thing I said to the jury. I don't understand what they don't understand. I don't understand how you cannot appreciate the fact that a, an individual who's told that she can have a termination has basically lost all hope for her baby. I mean, she's right. in the context of having been airlifted by helicopter to this hospital that is a level three NICU being sent there specifically for her baby and the doctors who work at that hospital saying, you know what? We would understand if you terminate this baby. I mean, that I don't know what else you can say to a person that would more explicitly tell them that their baby's chance of survival is, you know, is virtually non-existent. And on top of that, and, and the one, you know, Keith did it, gave a great summary of what happened, but on top of that, you know, this mom's 16 and they're telling her she's going to have a classical C-section if she has a C-section. And the actual language of their expert witness, their expert um, maternal fetal medicine specialist was, that could cause her uterus to explode his words, even if she never started labor. In a subsequent pregnancy. In a subsequent pregnancy. And so, you know, you've got a 16-year-old who's given sort of, you know, what kind of, no choice at all. I mean, that's what she's told. And so in that context, you can appreciate why an individual, and in this case, uh, because it's informed consent, is what would a reasonable person in the same or similar situation you know, want to know and would they, what would they do, you can understand why the jury would find that's, you know, that's, I don't know, you know, anything that's much worse that you can tell a parent about their child. Yeah. And I, I was just, you know, this whole concept and I, I know a big part of the defense was that while she chose not to have a C-section, well, I mean, first of all, she's a 16 year old um, and, and she's listening to her doctors and she trusts her doctors and then, you know, they're basically saying, you know, the child is not going to survive and there's really no reason to have a C-section. I, I just really question that defense. And obviously it didn't work. Um, how they would try and just blame a 16 year old for making that decision under those circumstances. We don't we don't disagree with you. I think that. Um you know, the other thing that was really uh, important in this case, and, and Keith touched on it when he was going through the facts, is that there were good facts that mom was never told. 
I mean, on the 21st, the same day that they, you know, earlier on the day on the 21st, they had done a biophysical profile of the baby, and it was a 10 out of 10. Up until the point when the monitor was taken off of mom, the, the strip had been reassuring. So there was no indication that this baby was having issues with oxygenation, that this baby wasn't doing well at that point in time. So there was really no, there was, there was no reason for them to even offer that. I mean, it, it just, and to not tell mom that. I mean, you can't, you know, not tell mom that very important information, which was never told to her or explained to her. Um, and mom, just, I just want to clear up one fact. Mom never decided to have the monitor turned off. The doctors said, because mom said she didn't want a C-section for fetal indications, we took the monitor off and they never put it back on. Okay. Um, Is the same true about the, about the NICU unit not being there? Oh yeah. They, they told her the NICU is not going to be there. We're going to do comfort care. We're going to wrap your baby in a blanket and hand your baby to her, to you until she, until she passes away. And during the trial, they really disingenuously, the providers tried to suggest that it was mom's choice not to have the NICU present. But, you know, we're dealing with a 16 year old girl who has never been in a hospital like this. Uh, and I think the jury kind of saw right through that. It was really disingenuous how they tried to. Right. And not only that, but she's at a, a world renowned hospital. I mean, so it's, you know, if you want to challenge what the doctors are telling you at a hospital, I mean, you don't challenge what the doctors at Johns Hopkins are telling you to do, especially if you're a 16 year old. Well, so a little back fact about this that the doctors yeah. knew was that, I mean, this girl was from, she had been recently adopted from Liberia. And so, I mean, she really, she was really, it's like any, anyone in that situation, even if you're, you know, you're 32 years old and you're college educated and you've got some level of sophistication, when you're in a situation like that, you're listening to what your doctors are telling you because you make the assumptions that because most of the time it's true. The doctors know what they're talking about and they're looking carefully at your records and the testing and they have your, the best interest of you and your baby. Um, and so, you know, people don't, in that situation where you really, and, and Keith talked about this in his opening too, is, I mean, in, the, in his, his closing, the, the, pow, the, the knowledge differential is so substantial between any patient and a, and a doctor. But in this case in particular, it was, it's just an imbalance of knowledge. I mean, not even knowing enough to even question what the doctors are telling you, to believe what they say. Um, and so I think it just magnifies sort of the, importance of the of the wrong information that they gave her right i I noticed that in keith's um i think that's how keith how you start started your um portion of the closing was you mentioned trust which we've talked about on previous episodes we talk a lot um about that in in medical malpractice cases but i also liked um what you did um which is exactly what mary's talking about and about the imbalance of power and the imbalance of knowledge, which sounds, especially, and it's always the case, usually, I guess, unless you happen to be a, a doctor or patient, um, but particularly in this case, I mean, I can imagine, it, it has to be scary for, for anyone, but um, it sounds like Erica was like, was only recently in this country and then sort of thrown into this situation. Right. She, she came here pregnant. Um, yeah, she had, she had her adoptive mother there with her, and this didn't really necessarily come out at the trial, but her adoptive mother, you know, was in her 40s. She had never given birth either. 
You know, so these, oh, these, wow. two, these two lay people, I mean, true lay people, are being told the same wrong information and trying to make decisions based on that same wrong information. And yeah, the, the theme to closing be, became that words matter and that there is no place where this is more true than in the doctor-patient relationship. And, you know, we trust what our doctors tell us. And if they've told us something wrong, the only way we're really able to know that is if they then come back and tell us. And that is precisely what they did not do here. Quite yeah. frankly, there was an arrogance in many ways associated with, I mean, you can't help but think there's an arrogance associated with that because the head of labor and delivery, you know, not only did she, she testify that, you know, she didn't go back and tell mom, but I think what was really, in, what was a really a stark um, dichotomy was she testified that the chiefs of, of obstetrics and gynecology at Hopkins main campus in Bayview had a right to know about this incorrect information being given to a patient and that mom didn't need to know. And oh I, goodness. and, <laughs> and so, I, you know, you just, you look at that and you think, you know, my God, I mean, what, are, <laughs> what, how can you, how can you ever even utter those words? You know, even if, well, first of all, even if they're true, <laughs> can you yeah. ever, I mean, it's just crazy. So, you know, one of the things that is really important to Keith and I is, I'm going to speak for Keith now, or Eric, whichever you prefer to be called. <laughs> right, um, exactly. <laughs> I, I think you just got a new name around the office, Keith. So. <laughs> I'm going to have to change the sign on my door. It's, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's really so, you know, what happens when this gets out into the press is that it goes out, you know, in sound bites. And so the thing that people, the takeaway people have in this case oftentimes is, well, they offered her a C-section and she said no. How could they give her $229 million? Well, because you don't really have an appreciation of what mom heard and, and what mom was really told and all of the facts that went into that. So, you know, this case is actually the really, it's interesting for the facts, but it's really, I think, interesting for the way in which we, we strategized in this case. Um, things really, you know, you just have some things in your life that really everything sort of breaks your way. Um, and some of those things break your way because you do things to make them break your way, and sometimes it just happens uh, organically. But um, and Keith can talk about this a little bit because I think it's really important. We didn't have mom testify in this case, and that was you know wow. a decision that we made um, because of everything mom had been through, and because of what the standard is on informed consent, and because there was so much documented in these medical records. Um, and she had been through a lot, and we just weren't prepared to put her on the witness stand to have to sort of relive that and go through that. And so we relied on the medical records. So I'll let Keith talk a little bit about that. Was, was, uh, was she present at trial or, or at least or present for just part of it? She was present for a year. Okay. And that was it. Okay. Uh, and she, to say that Erica Byram has been through a lot in her short life uh, is like the understatement of understatements. Um, you know, in, born in war-torn Liberia, Liberia um, lived in, in, quote, a yard uh, of a woman who was not her biological mother, um, not sophisticated or, or highly educated in any way, but made the best of every bad situation that was sent her way. And from all this trauma to, to say, you know, 
she, she doesn't know what she doesn't know is also an understatement. And, you know, we talk about these imbalances of power. Uh, you know, Mary and I, after many long discussions and back and forth, realized that we weren't going to subject her to the cross-examination of the hospital's lawyers. Uh, the medical records told the story very clearly and very convincingly. Uh, memories fade. You know, people have traumas in their life that affect the way they see things. And it, there was just no benefit whatsoever to putting her in front of that jury. Um, and we just live within the medical records and what they showed. And it wasn't, it was, it was an agonizing strategic, strategic decision we made. And, and the defense, of course, tried to play on that in their closing. You know, right. I, think, I think the defense lawyer must have said, you know, where is Erica Byram, you know, 15 times. But I think the jury completely understood through, through Mary's rebuttal that uh, um, there was a reason why we didn't do that. And it, it, and, it, and it really impacted nothing in terms of the way they saw the case. So... It was it was testified to in the courtroom because so what so another fact that the jury was aware of was after Erica gave uh, birth to Zubita and about a year after Zubita was born she had been adopted like uh, he said from Liberia um, as a teenager and what ended up happening is the relationship with the adoptive parents sort of hit the skids and. Erica ended up in foster care, as did Zubita. And so, and because oh, wow. of Zubita's many needs, there was not a foster home that could accommodate both Erica and her daughter. And so they have not had the ability to live under the same roof as a result of that. So the wow. jury was aware that, you know, Erica has been through a lot. I mean, the one little fact too is she also, not only did she live through the Civil War and, you know, part of the Civil War in Liberia, but she came here at the height of the Ebola crisis. So, I mean, there's a lot going on. And um, so, Erica, we had um, Zubita's foster mother testify at trial about Zubita and a, a little bit about Erica and Erica's involvement with uh, Zubita. And she was just, I mean, she's just, she was incredible. I mean, she was, she's, just such a, an amazing woman. And so I think that, you know, the, the jury got a feel and an understanding for why, you know, this would be just one more trauma for Erica. Um, and I have, I, have to, think I have to relive the events. I'm sorry to cut you off. I have to relive the events and be subject to cross. Right, right. right. When I think you handled that very well in your close. And, and I, it was also very effective um, to me, Mary, I think that you just mentioned, you know, you said they have a video of her deposi deposition, and they didn't—they didn't play any of it for you. Why do you think that is? Um, <laughs> and I think that was very effective to kind of take this point that they had tried to spend a lot of time making in their clothes, attacking you for not putting Erica on the stand, and for you to basically come up and say like, "Hey, they had video, and they didn't play it for you," was very effective. Well, that was—I'm uh, not afraid to say that on this podcast. I mean, that was kind of a trap that we laid. I mean, we—we <laughs> you know, we, we originally had talked about in my open in, in my opening close, you know, sort of hitting this head on and why didn't we call Erica? And then we realized, you know what, well, we should just sort of leave it alone and let the defense, you know, kind of step in it. And then we'll point out in rebuttal, well, A, they had their video, uh, had her video, and B, they didn't call half of the treaters, yeah. you know, who, who took care of Erica and Zubita. So, you know, right. what, what are they here complaining about? Uh, and it, it, 
it wound up working out very nicely, obviously. It did. And then I, I guess I'm wondering with uh, Zubita, was she there in the courtroom or for part of it? How did you handle that with the jury? So um, the defendants did make a motion uh, pre-trial to try to keep her out of the courtroom. Um, we agreed. Um, we told the court that we only w wanted to have Zubita there for about five minutes um, so that the jury had an opportunity to you know, meet Zubita because the case was about her. Um, and see her for a few minutes, um, but we thought that that was enough. Um, and so what we did was we brought, um, we ca I call her Zuby, we brought Zuby in when um, her foster mom was testifying. And so we introduced Zuby through her foster mom and had um, the jury have an opportunity to meet her. Um, Zuby is, um, I mean, a lot of times when you see kids who are as you know neurologically devastated as Zubita is, you don't see a lot of sort of interaction. And Zuby is just um, a happy baby. She loves meeting new people. She gets excited when people are like looking at her and paying attention to her. The only word she can say is hi. Mm -hmm. um, and so she was just, um, she was just in her element in front of the jury and the jury <laughs> really just got to see this joyful little girl who even though she's had so much taken away from her, still has a tremendous quality of life and a lot of credit for that goes to her mom and her foster mom. Yeah. She's, she's, she's a fighter. Um, one of the, the ironies of this case is the defense tried to make a big deal out of the fact that she was born so prematurely yet she actually had none of the problems that premature babies have. Right. She didn't have paraventricular leukomalacia. She didn't have intraventricular hemorrhage. She didn't have severe respiratory distress. She didn't have necrotizing enterocolitis. She, you know, she didn't have, you know, a lot, all, all the main problems that you see with premature babies. And I think that's because, you know, she's a, she's a fighter. Um, and I think that also came through, um, through much of the testimony of her appearance in the courtroom. So um, one thing I've been wondering about is, is the causation question here. It, it, and I wanted to, find out from you guys how you address that because if they don't have the monitors on her you know for the last 63 hours and then I thought that I saw in the evidence was that she had suffered her injury in the last hour or two before uh, her uh, delivery and I'm, I'm just wondering how, how did you approach that from a causation standpoint um, basically because of her because of her uh, physical appearance when she was born and the fact that they were able to resuscitate her and the fact that she had um, metabolic acidosis. I mean, her acidosis was pretty bad. Um, and so based on that, based on the timing from the head imaging, um, we were also able to pinpoint sort of when the injury occurred, which was at or around the time of birth. So, and then the nature of her injuries, um, you know, how she was injured, um, it was an HIE I mean, it's, it's an HIE type of injury. I mean, she had cystic encephalomalacia. Um, and so all of those things allowed us through our pediatric neurologist, our, uh, neurodi our pediatric radiologist, our neonatologist, um, really, and even our um, maternal fetal medicine specialists were all able to, to sort of pinpoint that time frame as the time frame in which uh, Zubita was injured. And so that's really how we did the causation. The defendants, the other thing that really I think helped us, and I'm, I'd invite Keith to jump in at any minute because I'll just keep talking, um, <laughs> is uh, 
the defendants were all over the place on their causation defense, I think. They had multiple theories of causation, none of which were the same. Yeah. Um, you know, we had two good data points. We had when the monitoring was discontinued, which everyone agreed was at a point in time when the Harvey was reassuring. And just before that, we had a biophysical that was perfect, 10 out of 10. So we had that those kind of data points. And then we had 63 hours down the road where she's born with low APGARs and, you know, asphyxiated and with metabolic acidosis and et cetera. And so the, I thought the only common sense thought that flowed from that was that the injury occurred some point in time when the monitoring was off. And our experts did a really good job, again, as Mary said, of, of pinpointing the timing of that through the neuroimaging and her presentation at birth. And the medical records themselves were full of statements that said things like, because the monitor is off, we won't be able to detect when there's fetal distress. And because of that, you know, the baby may suffer irreversible brain damage at a point in time where we can't see it. And we were sort of like, duh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's why you keep the monitor on. And our perinatologist touched on some of that as well, and that the monitoring would have, you know, shown information that would have allowed them to act and, and deliver the baby more timely. And so that was kind of how we attacked it and to piggyback on the, the defense uh, experts. And before I get to that, interestingly, the defense did not cross-examine two of our causation experts. Wow. They didn't cross-examine our pediatric neurologist, and they did not cross-examine our pediatric radiologist. Not one question, really, to either one of them. Um, and so they, they brought in one expert who said that uh, the injury was just because of prematurity, which there was essentially no evidence of. Uh, one of their experts changed his opinion during his uh, examination, actually. On direct, he said it was from chronic ischemia, and then on cross, he said it was a stroke. Uh, and then the other expert, uh, Dr. Brumberg, his theory was that there were emboli, that there were these emboli. Magic. Um, I call them magic emboli right. closing because they were fabricated. I mean, it was a fiction. They were, it was a, it was a defense that was made up out of thin air. Right. And you, you did a great point of pointing out that, you know, look at through all the medical records, do they ever mention you know, stroke or emboli anywhere in there. And, uh, right. You know, and I think, I think jurors, you know, are, get offended. You know, their, their intelligence gets offended when people come in and make up diagnoses. And it, it really did lead to, I mean, I, I think I, I may have said it, but I think I didn't even need to say it. But it's like, if, if this is so obvious, if it's so obvious that she just refused a C-section, there was nothing they could do. And that was their defense. Well, then why do they need to come in and make up diagnoses on causation? Right. Did this, you know, the story um, of, of what actually ended up ha happening in this case from um, how Erica was misinformed all the way and, and all these issues with the consent and then the monitoring being turned off and, and the causation issue, is this something that, was this story clear to y'all fairly early on or was it something, because one of the things that Steve and I were talking about before the interview was, was I guess, number one, how complicated these cases can be. But number two, even when I was reading the complaint kind of chronologically and what the records were documenting, I wasn't sure where it was going. And, and it seemed to me from my um, lack of expertise, you know, to, 
to be really tough. And I'm wondering for you all when this sort of picture of what really happened came together. Was it something you saw fairly early on? Was it something you started to piece together with expert review and in discovery? So credit to Keith who reviewed this case and um, realized immediately that the information mom had been given was wrong. Now we don't always have all the records, you know that when we start the right. case, um, it's a process <laughs> to get everything that you need and get all the depositions and get, you know, it evolves over time. But, you know, the nurse's note, um, the nurse, actually the nurse practitioner note that was written at about 930 on the night of October 21st that said that the baby weighed three to 400 grams. I mean, if that was true, then everything they had said would have also been true. And so Keith <laughs> realized that it, that, that, inf that, that was bad information that was a springboard for then how the how the pregnancy and the labor were handled and the, and the delivery. And so that was, that was like a key um, red flag in the file. And I, I happen to think, and I say this all the time, that, you know, discovery always makes your cases better. Right. Um, <laughs> it never usually makes them worse. And so um, we were able, you know, to establish all of the things that they had said and all of the things that they had done. And, and, you know, it, you know, discovery is a lot more extensive than what you actually finally see in the courtroom. Um, we had gone in one direction. We had really pursued this idea of, you know, sort of Erica and I'm putting a lot of emphasis on Erica. Quite frankly, we sort of shifted from that um, and made the emphasis more about sort of how the doctors handled it and, and the misinformation that they gave to her. But, um, it was, it's just sort of in, incredible how detailed the notes were in this case. And that's the, don't you think that was a red flag, Keith, for when we realized, wow, there's some, there's something more here because nobody writes notes like this. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to think that the case in some ways sort of jumped off the page at me when it first came into the office. Um, but definitely through discovery and certainly as we were preparing for trial, the, the theories really crystallized. And I think this um, case is a really good illustration of the power of the question, why? Yeah, I've been thinking that in preparation for the podcast today. Um, a, a lot of times, as lawyers and as lay people, we just accept facts for what they are. And we don't ask why. And if you start asking the question why, as it relates to her declining a C-section for fetal indications, you get drawn back to this mountain of incorrect information she was given, and a light bulb goes off. And it's not like it's a close call, in, at least in my mind. I, I said it earlier. No reasonable person would say, yeah, cut my belly open in two directions to deliver a dead baby. And again, I'll, I'll sort of echo what Mary said is, and I, I still to this day don't understand how the defense doesn't understand that, right. how yeah. the hospital doesn't understand that. You know, who in their right mind would agree to a C-section when, when they're, they're told this type of information? So it was definitely complex, but it, it, it did jump off the page and it certainly crystallized uh, through um, the, the discovery, which, which Mary did the overwhelming majority of, if, if not almost all of it. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the story. So, well, you know, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. 
Well, I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I was just, I was just going to follow up on, I mean, so you did a really good job in the opening and the closing of uh, just laying out sort of the timeline, but I mean, so you had this ultrasound two weeks before where she's 546 grams, then a week before where the baby looks normal. You got this biophysical profile, 10 out of 10. So I'm, I'm just wondering, did you all ever get a sense for where did this bad information come from like the 300 to 400 grams i mean it is or was that just nobody really knew where that came from we have an idea he has a theory i have a theory <laughs> I mean, and he, here's my theory and, I, and I, a lot of this was left to inference and maybe the jurors reached this conclusion maybe they didn't i mean no one was going to admit it sort of the the central player at the heart of the screw-up in this case was dr linda uh Shamansky or Szymanski, and I think her mistake was the springboard to the case, and I think what happened was she was kind of being lazy, and she saw one of the ultrasound reports that that contained the numbers 23 weeks and 6 days, but it also said plus or minus 14 days, which would encompass the gestational age of Zubida as understood by everybody who had seen her in Hopkins and prior to Hopkins. And I think she latched onto this 23 weeks and six days and assumed that because of that, the baby was not viable. And so, and if you look at, if you look at, uh, you know, fetal growth charts, the average gestational weight of a 24 week baby is right around 400 grams. And so I think, and, and it's not like the NICU providers know when to come see a patient, the perinatologists have to, have to get them have to ask for the consultation and stop me if this isn't making sense. But what I think happened was Dr. Shemansky made this erroneous conclusion that the baby wasn't viable because of an erroneous gestational age, called the NICU. The NICU was then told that the baby wasn't viable. The NICU then said, well, we've got a non-viable baby who only weighs approximately 400 grams. And then everybody went in and counseled her on outcomes for a non-viable baby at 23 weeks and change, weighing 400 grams, which is in the world of fetal medicine is like another planet. Right. As compared to a 25 week and change baby who weighs over 600 grams. And I think that was sort of the impetus. That's my theory at least. And again, it's not like Dr. Shemansky was gonna come into the trial and, and say, oh yeah, that's exactly what happened. Right. I, mis I misread the ultrasound. Right, right exactly. And, and but some of Mary's cross-examination did did certainly wade into these these areas, and I, um, I I found it interesting that of all the witnesses in the case, the only one who couldn't give a clear definition of what viability was was Dr. Shemansky. <laughs> she 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 waffled, you know. It's to her it was an amorphous term. To everybody else, it was very clearly defined. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. 
They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. They, they think they're going to be delivering a healthy baby, I assume, when she first comes there. Uh, you know, that's why they have the NICU team ready. She's going to do the C-section. And then you read this and you all of a sudden you think the baby's not going to be viable. So you know that you're going to change the entire plan. I mean, why not double check or triple check just to make sure that you've got your information right before making such a huge decision that's going to have such a huge impact? So that is one of the things that, you know, there are things that you – that you get that that come out in the courtroom and there are things that you question you know you go back to your office and you talk about it and you think well, I don't I just don't understand why they didn't do that one of the big things I've always said is all of the things that doctor that the Dr. Argani who's one of the witnesses who testified who was the head of labor and delivery all of the things that she did after Dr. Shizmansky offered termination were all of the things that should have been done before uh, termination was ever offered. They should have sat down with the NICU. Everyone should have looked at the information. But the problem is a lot of this stuff is word of mouth. And I always say to people, you know, it's like when you're a kid and you play that game whisper down the lane where you start at one end with a sentence and you, know, you work your way down. By the time you get to the end, what the last person says, the first person says is not even remotely close. And that's the danger in not reading medical records or, you know, and or not looking at the actual results we're making certain assumptions. And I think, you know, sometimes that people do that and, and it really happened here. I mean, she was a premature baby. She was gonna, I mean, her baby, the baby was gonna be premature. Zuby was gonna be born prematurely. Nobody, nobody disputes that. And nobody disputes the fact that premature babies can have issues. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it goes. But she was in a place which, you know, they testified. This was a place where moms with preeclampsia, preeclampsia with severe features is not uncommon. It's what they do. That's why they have maternal fetal medicine specialists there. That's why they're a level three NICU. They are equipped to deal with it. And it's something that they see all the time. And they, they attempted to portray this to the jury as some highly unusual, difficult, complicated circumstance. Are they the easiest patients in the world? No, but to a hospital that's designed to deal with patients just like Erica Byram, it's not an out of the ordinary circumstance. And so they really treated it as though it was something highly unusual and highly complicated when at the end of the day, it was really fairly routine for what it is they do. Right. So I, I think so that so a certain amount of disingenuousness comes across to the jury when the jury knows that that's what you do. So that's, and, and the other thing is they really tried to latch onto this idea um, that the baby was, you know, IUGR, intrauterine growth restricted, and how this was just such a horrible, you know, pro prophetic sign of what was going to happen to this baby. Well, it, it turns out they were wrong. She wasn't IUGR, and right. they, but, which is, it's okay to be, it's okay to be, 
you know, maybe wrong. It's okay to not know because you're basing it, it's an estimated fetal weight. But you have to appreciate the fact that you could be wrong. And then when you are actually wrong, as borne out by the fact that the baby's born in the 22nd percentile and is not small for gestational age, you have to admit it. And when you don't admit those things that are obvious, you lose your credibility with the jury. You just yeah. do. And if you lose your credibility on the easy stuff, how are you ever going to have credibility on the big issues? It's impossible. I mean, that's just sort of my theory of how you prosecute a medical malpractice case. You hit them on the easy stuff, and when they can't admit the truth of that, then the big stuff becomes much easier. Yeah, no, I mean, we and we've talked about it a number of times on this podcast how, you know, the number one goal is credibility. It's a it's a credibility battle, you know, your credibility, your client's credibility, and then the defense's credibility. Um, and, uh, who wins that battle and, you know, 99 times out of a hundred is, you know, probably going to prevail in the case. Well, and related to this credibility issue, um, I don't want to get ahead of you, Steve. I don't know if you were going here, but, um, <laughs> I noticed this in the closing and I'm just dying to hear how this played out at trial. But, um, it sounds like, I don't know if it was a critique of the costs of the life care plan or features of the life care plan, but, um. Uh, the sort of efforts to say that just an extra pair of hands were needed and that I guess that um, Zubita could be hooked up to a feeding tube overnight and that could save some money. <laughs> I'm that, that was, I, I'm sorry. I want Kate to address it, but that was my part of the case. So yeah. I just, that testimony, they tried to, the defendants strived mightily to try to keep that out. I, I will tell you that tactically what they did was they put, so it was their pediatric neurologist, Dr. Dushowney. They put him on to testify about issues of causation and life expectancy and stayed away from any issues involving the life care plan. I had already taken the Debeni essay of their life care planner, and I had used all of the comments that Dushowney had made in his deposition in cross-examining their life care plan, excuse me, the life care planner. Their economists had already testified. So they already had their number in front of the jury, which was $3 million. What they wanted to do, so they came, so we, they did the direct of their pediatric neurologist. We took the, we went out for the lunch and recess. We came back and they said, we're not calling Dr. We're not gonna play our life care planners video, okay? And I said, well, that's fine, I'm gonna to move to strike your economist's testimony because he only testified about your life care plan. So if you're not gonna play it, then I'm gonna I'm gonna to move to strike right. it. We moved to strike it, the judge granted it. And they were like, well, no, 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 no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, no, 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 we want that testimony in front of the jury. So, okay, we'll, we're, we'll play Dr. Patrick. That's their life care plan. It's like, well, no, 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 no. You can't play Dr. You can't play Dr. Patrick unless you lay a foundation with your pediatric neurologist because everything Dr. Patrick put in his life care plan, he said was based on the medical necessity as testified to by Dr. Deshauny and the, that it was medically reasonable. Dr. Patrick is a PhD, he's not a medical doctor. You can't play Dr. Patrick without laying the foundation with Dr. with Dr. Deshauny. And so they looked at us and they said well, are you going to, will you let us reopen? And of course we wanted them to reopen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was the best cross-examination. Mary, Mary and I were like, well, let's think about we'll it. Think uh, sure. yeah, we like, well, right, we shouldn't let you do it, but we will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it opened the door for us 
and for Mary in particular to really hammer Dr. Dushani on what are just offensive opinions. To try, I mean, just first of all, the, the life expectancy opinion is just, it's, it's, it's offensive. I mean, it's just, and, and it wasn't, you know, our, our life expectancy expert came in and was quoting articles and quoting studies and described his methodology. You know, Dushani comes in and he just picks a number out of a hat, essentially, and they don't ask him any bases for the opinion. And then on the heels of that, Zubita was already getting 16 hours a day of nursing care, and this guy's trying to take it away. And right. I don't care. I don't care whether you you know you, you vote blue or you vote red or whatever your leanings are, liberal, conservative. That's offensive to anyone. She's been qualified to get a certain amount of care and a certain quality of care, and this guy comes in and is trying to literally take it away. And the feeding tube issue was was I mean just it was outrageous. And and his whole thing is well you know the only reason they need a night nurse is because she gets feeding throughout the night. Well, but the there are qualified treating healthcare providers who have no stake in this litigation who have determined that's what she needs. And here comes Dr. Dushani with his paid opinion, and I get it, all the experts are getting paid. But Dr. Dushani comes in and says, well, no, we can get rid of all of that to save the defense money by shoving you know, supplements down the feeding tube before she goes to bed. And that way, she doesn't need a nurse at night. And it's just offensive. There's no other word for it. It was really... And then it got to be, then we got to reiterate it because they played Dr. Patrick and all of the right. things that Dr. Dushani, all the offensive things that Dr. Dushani said came out again through Dr. Patrick. And Dr. Patrick disagreed with Dr. Dushani on, he, even he couldn't swallow the idea that this child did not need a nurse. And so he built nursing into his plan, even though the neurologist testified she didn't need it because he just couldn't. In his heart of hearts, he knew that it was 100% wrong and just right. couldn't do it. Right. And, to, and he didn't have a credible opinion on causation, Dr. Dushani, but to the extent he did, it was completely undermined by this damage testimony on the life expectancy and the nursing care and the feeding tube, just completely undermined, which you know raises questions about defense strategy, but you know, that wasn't my job. <laughs> Still is not right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think it was Dr. Dushani, uh, Keith, who you, uh, in your closing, uh, labeled as the paid minimizer, which yes, uh, which I really like. Exactly what he is. I mean, he's uh, we've seen him historically. You know, the birth trauma plaintiffs bar. He's well known to a lot of my colleagues around the country. Um, you sort of see him listed in the defense designation, and you raise your eyebrows. Um, and you sort of you sort of know what you're getting. He, he works for the Florida uh, Injury Compensation Fund, and you know their job as a body of the Florida government is to pay brain injured children as little as possible because it's coming out of you know governmental resources, state resources, and so it all makes sense when you look at it in context. He's the guy who says these kids need basically nothing. It saves the state of Florida a bunch of money. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, so Mary, in your, in your opening statement, I thought you did a really good job of just sort of laying out the medicine, laying out, you know, there's a lot of complicated terms in cases uh, like this, and just sort of, you know, walking the jury through that. And I just wanted to hear you two talk about how you take a case like this and just simplify it for the jury so you can make it a nice, easy, and digestible for the jury to understand. So first, I will tell you that we worked on that opening statement as a group, myself, Keith, and Sarah Smith, um, 
for um, we spent a lot of hours and a lot of days refining that opening statement. And probably, I will probably twenty to thirty hours. <laughs> um, that was a total. I mean, I was the one who got the honor of standing up there and 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 making the opening, but you know, giving it to the jury. But it was a it was a total group effort. And you know, we are not embarrassed to say that we focused this case. Um, right. We had we had fo we had a focus group um, and. They really, we, we put it in front of them a couple different ways. We, there was three different groups. We tried it one way, um, made adjustments, tried it a second way, made more adjustments. By the time we got to the third group, we got everybody on our side because of the adjustments that we had made. And we really worked hard to stay true to what the focus group told us because we really felt like that was going to be our path to being able to help Zuby and her mom. And it really, really, it really was. I mean, and I'm not always a big fan of focus groups, but I got to tell you that that was really a, a huge part of us putting this case together the way that we did. Yeah, I mean, a opening statement is about sequencing. Yeah. And uh, the the focus group literally sequenced the 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 opening for us, um, and it it made us it really forced us to stay tight. And to stay focused and to, and to stick with the sequence and not play in the defense's sandbox at all. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't think you mentioned the defense, anything related to the defense at all, no. other than that they were going to try and blame mom, um, maybe touching upon that. But we really didn't. We, we said, you know what? The defense, the defense's case is the defense's case. Let them give their opening statement. You know, let's, let's give the jury our case. And one of the things I'm really proud of, and I know Mary is too, and I know Sarah is too. You know, we, we painstakingly put together that opening and we told the jury, here's what we're going to prove. And we did it. We yeah. proved every single piece of information that we said we would. And I think going back to the credibility discussion, you know, we just had the credibility um, on our side and the defense just did not. Yeah. That, no, that, I, 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 um, that's it in a nutshell. Absolutely. I, I was just going to say that I, I make it a, a big point when I try a case, you know, to make sure that somebody is taking very detailed notes of the other side's opening. And it, if, if they don't follow up on something that they said they were going to do, I make sure to mention that in closing. And so, it, it, again, you're right. It just goes back to, you know, what you promise you're going to do to the jury. And then you actually got to follow up on that promise. Can I tell you, we also had, uh, and this is one thing that Real, you know, obviously we've talked to, to the press a little bit about this case, you know, after it happened and, um, you know, immediately after when it's newsworthy, if you will, at that point. Um, and, you know, it's really, I hate the concept of runaway juries. I hate the idea that people, when uh, an award like this happens, that automatically everybody assumes that it's a quote unquote runaway jury yeah. because um, this was not, I mean, this jury was, first of all, the defendants had a jury consultant who helped them pick the jury. We did, you know, we just, it was just the three of us. Maybe we should hire her. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but this jury was, I mean, and I ho hopefully they don't, one of them doesn't hear this and I insult them about their age to the extent they would be insulted. But they were, I would say that there was probably no one who was younger than 35 or 40 and most of them were probably more in their 40s and maybe in their 50s. Um, all educated, working people who really just were so uh, 
like followed the, the court's instructions to the T, were there every single day on time. They were engaged. They were engaged in the case. They, you know, were respectful to the process. Um, you know, they were not out that long. They were only out for about two and a half, maybe two hours and 45 minutes, which usually is like a shot in the heart for plaintiff's lawyers, right? Because we don't. Right. Yeah, that's a little too quick. The worse right. it, or the worse <laughs> it is. But, you know, they, they came out with the first question about an hour into deliberations, and it was about damages. And every question that they sent out was a damages question. So when people think that, you know, the, the jury came lightly to that number of $200 million for future medical expenses, they didn't. I mean, they were thoughtful about that. And they also, um, there were a lot of things that they heard during the course of the trial, which would allow them to come to the conclusion that Zubita needed a, a lot of care. And quite frankly, I think the takeaway was they really wanted to be sure that Zubita got the best care possible for the rest of her life so she could live her best life. Yeah. Um, well, well, let's talk about damages a little bit because, and I should have mentioned this right from the beginning, it, it, it's been reported and as far as I've ever heard of, uh, this is the largest medical malpractice verdict that's ever happened in the United States. Um, and so the, the breakdown of the verdict was the past medical expenses were 3.6 million. The future medical expenses were 200 million. Lost earnings was, was a little bit over a million. And then the uh, non-economic pain and suffering damages was 25 million. So how, talk a little bit about how you approach the damages. And, um, and I don't know uh, what the law in Maryland is. Are you allowed to ask for a number or you give them uh, the jury a way to figure out how did you approach the damages number in this case? Right. There's no prohibition in Maryland in terms of asking for a number in terms of economic dam damages or non-economic damages. And the thrust of, you know, our closing was really to empower the jury to make sure that Zubita was taken care of for the rest of her life. I think I said it twice actually. Uh, and I shied away from the non-economic damages side of things, even though they gave $25 million, um, because there is a cap in Maryland, and I, you know, I, I have a client to protect, and it would do us no good if they gave $50 million for non-economic damages and a million dollars for the, you know, for the future events. Um, right. And so the, the, the law in Maryland um, permits the, you know, us to suggest the number and to, for the jury to, you know, <clears throat> escalate or de-escalate that number in any way, fashion, uh, in any way, shape, or form, so long as it, it conforms to uh, evidence in the case, to which we think there is ample evidence to support the $200 million. Um, the, on cross-examination, our economist was you know, grilled on inflation rates and interest rates, and, and it was pointed out to the jury, again, in cross, that our life care plan changed $9 million in six months. You know, well, that, that kind of says to the jury, well, geez, if interest rates continue to fluctuate and inflation rates continue to go in that direction, and, uh, you know, it, it, it may be a lot more <laughs> that's going to take to make sure she was taken care of. And I really don't think there's any question that this jury was trying to ensure that she was taken care of for the rest of her life. And I agree with Mary, this was not a decision they came to lightly. Uh, they had to answer six liability questions on the verdict sheet before they got to damages. You know, two questions on negligence, two questions on informed consent, two affirmative defense questions, and then damages. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you, and I and I want to come back to the two hundred million, but um, but um, you know, so Maryland is uh, one of four states that's contributory negligence, and um, and so I'm wondering on that question number six that was on here of whether or not Erica Byron was contributory negligent and approximate cause of Zubita's Byron's injuries. If they had answered yes to that one, does that completely knock out this case? Yes. Wow. And we and we we we, we fought it vigorously. Argued that yeah. their assumption of the risk nor contrib should have been on the verdict sheet. And obviously, in hindsight, we're happy that they were, uh, because those issues can't be now raised, you know, post trial. Um, but I also just think it's a really powerful reflection of the jury understanding our case. It didn't take them long to realize how terrible Hopkins's conduct was and that whatever decisions Erica made played no role in this whatsoever because she was influenced and induced into those decisions. Right. And, you know, and I guess I, I, the real problem I had with that question is, is that, you know, you're asking about whether or not Zubid is going to, you know, receive Thank fair you. compensation and not, and, and then you're asking about Erica, whether or not, you know, she was negligent. I mean, it, it just seems fundamentally unfair because you're talking about a, a child uh, who obviously had no decision in what happened here. And then the decision, even if her, her mother had made some sort of mistake that had caused this, it still shouldn't be held against the child. So I will tell you that I, in retrospect, it worked out fine, but I vigorously, um, argued the issue because I, I agree with you, the law, I cannot, my, I cannot, I cannot be contributorily negligent to someone else's injury. The concept of contributorily negligent is because I, the injured party have contributed to my injury. I can no longer blame the tortfeasor or collect from the tortfeasor. Erica Byram, I mean, Zubita Byram could not have contributed to her injury. Um, it's just not, that's not the concept of contributory negligence. That's not the legal definition. Right. Um, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think in our discussions about arguing it, I think this is how you argue to the court, A cannot be contrib for B. B right. Right. And yeah. A cannot assume the risk for B. Right. I mean, those are just, that's like restatement of torts, basic. And my concept. argument to the court was, is that, you know, if anything, it's negligence. If you're, you're going to say anything about Erica Byron, what you would have to say is that she was negligent. The problem with that is the negligence of a parent cannot be imputed to a minor. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they, they just, they had, they were in a little bit of a trick bag, but at the end of the day, the judge put it on the verdict sheet and the jury said no. And so, you know, um, no harm, no foul. This was, right. this was, and to be clear, you know, for, for the listeners of this podcast, this was the defendant's verdict sheet. This was the verdict sheet they wanted that they asked for to which they had no exceptions to. And we did. And so this was the verdict sheet that they wanted, that they got. And, you know, it obviously broke bad for them. Right. Right. Um, well, so, so going back, uh, um, Keith, when you were explaining the damages, did, did you, was your, did you ask the jury for 200 million or was it more of a way to figure out, you know, how to come to that number? No, I asked the jury to award the full value of the life care plan, which was around $40 million. Um, and I asked them though, I made it clear to them that they should not get the benefit of the doubt on anything. That the defense should not get the benefit of the doubt on anything. And what I was trying to infer to them was essentially what happened in a way. I don't want to seem prophetic, 
but it, it's I was trying to to forecast to them you got to make sure this girl's taken care of for the rest of her life. Yeah. Because yeah. any because anything else would be unjust. I heard. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a it, it's a fantastic job. I mean, it's a it's a really tragic case, and um, you know, and it's I, I think you all hit it on the head when you're talking about the fact that you know if, if they had just owned up to the mistake they made, um, you know, you certainly wouldn't have had this outcome, um, you know, and and I could see how when they say certain things would just offend the jury when 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 a doctor takes a stand and says that that the you know higher ups at her, at her hospital have the right to know medical information but that the patient does it i i can't imagine a jury that wouldn't just be offended by that so this is really interesting too though because obviously you know when you get a verdict like this what the defendants want to argue is is that it was um they're punishing that the jury is punishing the defendants and that's a reason why the verdict, the amount of the verdict should be reduced, remitted or should be granted. And I think, and they have made that argument. And I think that they're flat out wrong about that. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. I think that if you look at the award of $25 million for pain and suffering, um, it sounds like a large number. Um, it sounds more like more of a large number in Maryland because we have a draconian cap and the damages will have to be reduced to $740,000 for the non-economic portion. But if you look at a $25 million award for pain and suffering for a little girl who's four and a half years old and is gonna live into her 70s, if you take that, first of all, that's number one. Number two, I can't think of a person in the world who for $25 million would change medical conditions with Zubita Byram. So the $25 million to me, if you're looking at it um, without looking at what the cap is and just looking at it as a practical matter, it's completely appropriate given the devastating injuries that Zubita has. Yeah. Um, but that is dwarfed by the future medical care, which says to me they were not punishing the defendants. They were ensuring that this little girl got what she needed. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what that $200 million reflects. And they are following what the defense expert said in his testimony, their life care planner, that, that she basically should have the best of everything for the rest of her life. And that's what the jury's ensuring, that this child should not want for anything. That if there are, you know, think about it, if there are new, um, there are medical breakthroughs and new technologies that can assist her, she should have the money to do that. She's living in foster care right now. They know she doesn't have a home. Um, they want to make sure she's taken care of. Um, and so that's what they did. And, you know, that's just one more thing. That's, you know, that's the gamble we all take when we try cases. The yeah. gamble that we take is that, you know, for us, it's that we're going to come up with a goose egg. For the, for the defendants, it's they're going to get hit with a big verdict. And, you know, it's not like there weren't settlement negotiations in this case because there were. And the defendants did what was their right to do, which is they decided they didn't want to negotiate and they wanted to go to trial. And that's what we did. Um, And that is the only thing that we can do as plaintiff's lawyers. And for all those people out there who think this is a sign of we should have tort reform or we should do this or we should do that, that's not the job of Keith, myself, Sarah, or our firm. We have a little girl who's got a devastating injury, and we are in that courtroom to get her what she deserves for the rest of her life, and that's what we did, and we did it extremely successfully in this case, and I will never apologize for that. Yeah, well, you know, in in, in tort reform, you know, we don't need to get off into that, but I mean, tort reform affects 
people like Zubita. I mean, the people who really need the care the most. It doesn't affect the, you know, whiplash case that, you know, uh, where the injuries aren't that bad, you know, and I don't want to downgrade a a whiplash case, but I mean, you know, there's no way that you can compare those injuries. I mean, the tort reform affects people who really need the, the, um, the funds they get. Absolutely. So, I mean, we couldn't be, I mean, I'm not going to lie about this either. We walk around and pinch ourselves periodically because it's pretty amazing. And, you know, when we took the verdict, we looked at each other and just said, they just say $200 million. Um, Well, you know, I was, I was thinking about, I was just looking at this. I mean, if she's going to, you know, if she's four years old and going to live another 60 to 70 years and her past meds in those four years are 3.6, 200 million is about what she's been paying. I mean, it's not, um, it's not off. Right. It's consistent. That's another way the the jury could have arrived at that number, you know, and, and the jury is, is not only supposed to, but they're instructed to use their background and their own life's experiences to reach the verdict. And I think that there were jurors and on our panel that understood economic uncertainty. And that just plays into wanting to make sure that uh, an injured girl like this is, is fully compensated. Right, yeah. right. Well, and what a fantastic result. I mean, this, this case was already tragic and that, that was before I knew until at the start of the podcast that um, now Zubita and her mom were both in foster care separately. I mean, that's just sadder than sad. Yeah, I mean, and, and this didn't come up, but I, it's my personal opinion that the cause of that is this negligence as well. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's the reason that they're unable to live live together is because of her injuries, you know, and yeah, and, uh, yeah. that that's that, that's their fault too, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Mary and Keith, this has been uh, just a fantastic discussion. Congratulations on uh, this tremendous result. Um, I guess I should, as you said, that they have filed a remitter, and I'm sure they're asking for a new trial. Uh, just out of curiosity, what do they think it should be remitted to? To um, the our life care plan. To, okay, to, to $40 million essentially? They think she should not get her past medical expenses. Uh, they think it should be remitted to our life care plan. But then they go a step further. So Maryland has a statute that allows defendants to ask the court, and the court within their discretion can grant um, – they can ask for the for the um, judgment of the the award of the jury to be funded over time, basically to annuitize the award. So they've also filed a motion to annuitize the award that would so that in essence it would cost them uh, significantly less. Right. And there's a lot of arguments and a lot of issues that go into that. We're in the process. As a matter of fact, our post our responses to their post trial motions are due tomorrow. So, okay. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for taking uh, some time to talk to us then when you obviously have some other more important things to do. Yes. Um, well, well, let me I'm t- at a point in my career when I can just proofread. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> well, uh, this has been just a great, uh, great interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Let me just tell our listeners that we have been talking to Mary McNamara, Coke and Keith Foreman Cook. from, uh, Oh, Cook, man. Yeah, see, I'm screwing up everybody's name. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was so proud of myself that I didn't say Eric. <laughs> Mary McNamara, Cook, and Keith D. Foreman at Waste, Vogelstein, Foreman, and Offit in uh, 
Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, you can look up uh, Mary and Keith at malpracticeteam.com. By the way, that's a great website name, uh, malpracticeteam.com. Uh, Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. Thanks Thank for you for us. having us. We thoroughly enjoyed it. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.